Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Longtime listeners of our show know that each week we introduce the weekly Torah portion, known in Hebrew as Parashah, to you, the audience, and spend some time with a guest unpacking the literal meaning and the figurative meaning um, and the religious meaning and sometimes the historical meaning of the Torah portion. The Jewish people are reading in their yearly cycle from the book of Genesis, Bereshit, the first book of the five books of the Torah. And our Torah portion this week, read in communities throughout the world, is known as Toldot, usually translated as Generations. The parasha begins in Genesis 25.1 and continues a rather long parasha through Genesis 28, verse 9. I want to give an overview of our parasha before I introduce our guest, who will help us focus our conversation this morning. In this week's uh, parasha, uh, Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebecca endure 20 years without a child until their prayers are answered and Rebecca conceives. She, she experiences a difficult pregnancy, as the Torah tells us that the children struggle inside her. The Eternal tells her that there are two nations in your womb, and that the younger will prevail over the elder, namely that there are twins. Esau emerges first. Jacob is born clutching Esau's heel. Esau grows up, according to the Torah, to be a hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob is Ishtam Yoshev Ba'ohel. He is a uh, calm, gentle person living in the tents. We're told in the Torah portion that Isaac favors Esau, the man of the field, and Rebekah loves Jacob. One day, Esau, returning exhausted and hungry from hunting, asks, uh, sells his birthright, his rights as the firstborn to Jacob for a pot of red lentil stew. Parallel to this, in the land of Gerar, in the land of the Philistine, Isaac presents Rebekah as his sister, uh, modeling that which his father did uh, with his wife, Sarah, out of fear that he will be killed by someone coveting her beauty. He farms the land, reopens the wells dug by his father, Abraham, and digs a series of his own wells. Over the first two, there is a strife with the Philistines, but the waters of the third well are enjoyed in tranquility. Esau, the text tells us, marries two Hittite women. Isaac grows old and blind and expresses his desire to bless Esau before he dies. While Esau goes off to hunt for his father's favorite food, asked to do so by Isaac, Rebekah dresses Jacob in Esau's clothes, covering his arms and neck with goatskins to, to simulate the feel of the hairier brother. 
She prepares a dish similar to that which Isaac asked for and sends Jacob to his father. Jacob receives his father's blessing, as it says, for the dew of the heaven and the fat of the land, and in that way assumes mastery over his brother. When Esau returns and the deception is revealed, all Isaac can do for his weeping son is to predict that he will live by his sword and that when Jacob falters, the younger brother will forfeit his supremacy over the elder. The Torah portion concludes with Jacob leaving home for Haran to flee Esau's wrath and to find a wife in the family of his mother's brother, Lavan. Esau marries a third wife, Machalat, who the text tells us is the daughter of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. It is a Torah portion that I think speaks to its title, Generations, but within the simple narrative are many interesting dynamics. With me this morning to unpack this Torah portion is Rabbi Joe Klein, ordained as a rabbi from the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio. He has served as the rabbi of congregations in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, before becoming the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in Oak Park, Michigan in 1997, and served there until he retired as Rabbi Emeritus of the Temple Emmanuel in 2013. Since 2015, Rabbi Klein is the visiting rabbi of the Gross Point Jewish Council. He is currently adjunct faculty in the Religious Studies Program of Oakland University and Rochester University, and teaches October through May in the Metropolitan Detroit Jewish Federation's Adult Education Program. While in Indiana and Tennessee, he was adjunct faculty in humanities at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, Indiana State University, and the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. As you can tell from this introduction, Rabbi Klein is uh, very accustomed to teaching the sacred texts of the Jewish people and has experience teaching the texts not only within the synagogue world, but in the larger community. Rabbi Klein, welcome back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I must say that was a wonderful introduction. And of all of the introductions I've ever had, that was the most recent. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I could keep up to date with what you're doing. You have. Um, you are uh, Rabbi Emeritus and theoretically retired, but it sounds like from your introduction that you continue to pursue the teaching of sacred texts and offer new insights to different audiences. So why don't you help our audience this morning understand um, what the essence of this Torah portion is about? Yeah, and there's some very interesting insights. The, uh, the Jacob story that begins here really stretches over three weeks, three different Torah portions. Um, I like to think of the three of them together as what goes around comes around. 
Um, you began by explaining correctly that Rebecca is pregnant and that the children struggled in her womb. Now, that's the usual translation of what was happening in her womb. Uh, the problem, I don't agree with it, however. Uh, the Hebrew uh, for this verb of what the twins are doing, yitrotsatsu, means to run over each other. It's more than struggling. Or to run after each other. Or after each other. Uh, how do you run after each other in the womb? Well, you're running over each other, right? You're going around in a circle. I, I think that what's happening uh, becomes apparent when uh, Esau is born, comes out first, and Jacob is uh, being dragged out of the womb, holding on to Esau's heel. So what were they doing, running around each other or after each other? They were playing a game of musical chairs to see who was going to get out of the womb first, who was going to be the first one to break for daylight. Uh, Esau makes it. Jacob grabs his heel and tries to pull him back in so he can be first. Uh, and as a result, the force of, uh, of the vaginal muscles push Esau out, dragging now. Uh, Jacob behind him. And so he's named heel, Jacob meaning heel. Then the text very quickly says they grew up. Uh, uh, and we have this incredible scene of Esau coming in from the field, seeing Jacob in camp cooking, I guess on a fire outside, cooking this red pottage of, of uh, lentils. And, he's, and he says, I'm so hungry I could die. Give me some of that stuff. Um, you know, when our kids came home from school in the afternoon and they would say, you know, can can we have a snack? I'm so hungry I could die. Uh, my response and, and their mother's response was always, look, you're not going to die. Have a carrot, have some celery, uh, but you're not going to die. And we're going to have dinner in a few hours. And I don't want you to spoil your appetite. So Esau, you know, Esau reminds me of the character Lenny. In John Steinbeck's of Mice and Men, Lenny can only can only deal with one thing at a time, and whatever he deals with, that's all he can deal with. He he can't do anything else. And Esau comes in from the field and he's hungry, and he sees this pot of stew, and he says, "Oh, I gotta have that. Gotta have that. Gotta have that. Gotta have that." Jacob, understanding Esau's temper temperament temperament that he can only deal with one thing at a time, takes advantage of him. And he says, sell me your, your birthright, the property of the firstborn child, firstborn son. And Esau says, I'm going to die. What use is the property to me anyway? Let me just um, help our audience understand two things. One, um, there is a motif already established in Genesis that uh, secondborn children end up being the progenitor. Uh, in the story of Abraham, um, the firstborn child of Abraham, Ishmael, um, does not end up being the inheritor of the birthright. Goes back to Adam and Eve, even. Correct, uh, with Cain and Abel. And, and so this continues this interesting biblical narrative um, of second children being the favorite and being the inheritor. And interestingly enough, I'm sure our audience remembers that Ishmael is promised to be 
um, the father of an alternative nation, which uh, is identified by Jewish tradition as Islam. And Esau is also promised to be um, the father of a nation, which is usually considered the Edomites, uh, which Jewish tradition then identifies as the Romans. Right. So we continue with this story, as we do with the story of uh, barren matriarchs. Sarah is barren for a number of years, and here Rebecca is barren as well. But I wanted to ask you, when you compare Esau to Lenny, which is a wonderful comparison, um, and I hadn't heard it um, phrased that way before, um, Lenny is often portrayed, I'm not sure that Steinbeck did, but Lenny is often portrayed as somewhat of a simpleton. Yes. Certainly in movies and plays. Um, do you think that the Torah presents Esau that way? I do. I, um, I, and I have great sympathy for Esau. I, you know, he's a simpleton in the sense that he can only deal with simple things, one thing at a time. Uh, and, you know, there are people like that. And, and I have great sympathy. I, and I cry for Esau throughout this narrative. I know that Esau comes to be portrayed, as you said, as Rome uh, later by the rabbis. I, I disagree with that. Uh, I have great sympathy for Esau, particularly at the end of the story uh, when the brothers meet up again. Uh, but, yeah, I do. I do see him that way. Um, and it's interesting that you say that because the Torah portion says that uh, Jacob is Ishtam, and sometimes Tom is translated as simple. Yep. Also perfect. Also perfect. Absolutely. So we have this kind of interesting dichotomy that um, Jacob is uh, presented as um, perfect or simple. And Esau, a man of action, right? but whose uh, ability to process um, many things at once um, or inability to process many things at once seems to be his undoing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to thank you and hope that our listeners were able to follow that very interesting um, analysis of Esau. Um, and that um, he understand that they understood that um, Jacob takes advantage, right, of his of his simplicity, exactly, which doesn't lead us um, to have um, a sense of um, Jacob being um, a great man. No, he's a heel. I mean, even the English expression calling somebody a heel which my college students have no idea what that means, by the way. Uh, it's an old-fashioned term, I guess. Uh, it's not complimentary at all. Uh, in fact, Jacob will have to be transformed later on. So um, the heel, Jacob, then becomes the uh, third of the patriarchs. Um, and as you suggested, it's going to take a, a totally different Torah portion right. um, for him to make this transition. Um, in this birth story, is there anything else that you want to um, call to the attention of our listeners before we perhaps move to another aspect of the Torah portion? Uh, no. I mean, the next thing that happens is af after Jacob takes advantage and deceive, he doesn't deceive his brother, 
There's no deception. He takes advantage of his brother's weakness. Uh, but the next scene is that he steals the blessing that was meant for for Esau, uh, that Isaac meant for Esau, at the initiative of his mother and at the support of his mother, uh, to steal uh, the blessing that uh, Ish- that Isaac wanted for uh, for Ishmael. Um, he, 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 so it's these two things that he's taken away from his brother. And we have this scene where Esau finally comes back from the field, bringing the food his father wants, expecting this blessing. And Jacob says, well, I've already, uh, I mean, uh, Isaac says, I've already given it. And Jacob in this, I mean, and Esau says, father, have you no blessing left for me? There's this tragic, tragic, tearful expression, don't you have anything left for me? He does get a blessing. It's not as good as Jacob's, but he does get a blessing. Jacob takes advantage of Isaac's blindness uh, to uh, to steal. This one is a steal, to steal the blessing. Uh, and Jacob runs away. He's afraid of his brother, who is this action man. Action. I mean, Lenny is an action figure, too. You know, he's a big, powerful uh, uh, man. Uh, in Steinbeck's book. So he runs away uh, and into next week's story, uh, <laughs> Jacob meets the love of his life, uh, Rachel, uh, and in the, uh, following the, the uh, festival for the marriage, uh, he, he goes into the marriage tent and his about-to-be father-in-law, Laban, slips the older daughter, uh, Leah, into the tent instead of Rachel. Uh, Jacob sleeps with her, wakes up the next morning and says, whoa, this isn't the woman I married. And Laban says, well, yeah, it is. You slept with her. You're married now. The irony, of course, is that Laban, also a trickster, takes advantage of Jacob in exactly the same way that Jacob took advantage of his father, Uh, the blindness in the dark. The switching the for Jacob, they switch the younger for the older. Here and with Laban, they switch the older for the younger. You know, this goes around, comes around is is just so clearly apparent. Uh, and then he has to marry R- Rachel as well. So in our Torah portion, you reminded the listeners that Esau sold his birthright. Do you have a sense why the Torah then makes such a um important issue of the blessing. What did the blessing represent, if you can offer an opinion on that? Uh, Because he's already sold the birthright. So in theory, Jacob has call upon the uh, role of firstborn, but he wants a blessing. Esau wants a blessing. Uh, What's your sense of why this is important? Well, the birthright is property. And the blessing is success. So you can have property and not be successful, not be happy, not, not produce anything on the property. Uh, so, you know, both really are, are necessary. Is the, is the birthright both property and succession? Well, succession is property. I, I don't see that, that they're different at all. Okay. The father dies and he takes over the land, or at least the majority of the land. The second son would get something, uh, maybe a third. Um, for those listeners who read the text as sacred text rather than literature, 
What do we make of the fact that Jacob, uh, that Isaac, the son of Abraham, um, makes no mention of the covenant in this story at all um, and really doesn't speak to how we began um, um, Genesis 12 in terms of the relationship between Abraham and his descendants and what will be known as the God of Israel. Is it just an anomaly or is it meant for something else? Well, as I read the text, (laughs) which is all that I can ask you to respond to. As I read the text, how does Isaac understand the covenant? He understands it through the events on Mount Moriah. In the covenant, Abraham's God told Abraham to go kill his son on Mount Moriah. I think Isaac understands that, that that's, that's what the covenant, that's the essence of the covenant. That's the consequence of the covenant. And perhaps Isaac really doesn't want anything to do with it. What an interesting understanding that Isaac, who's number two right. in the line of patriarchs, and who in the liturgy, we say God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, we know of the God of Abraham. That's pretty obvious in, in Genesis 12 forward. We don't know very much about the God of Jacob and what you're of Isaac and what you're suggesting is that the aftermath of Genesis 22, which is the story of the binding of Isaac, known in Hebrew as the Akedah, is that Isaac wants nothing to do with this covenant. Uh, Perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) But the text is uh, mute on the subject. Uh, Interestingly mute. Interesting mute. And unlike Sarah who um, had her name changed um, to, from Sarai to Sarah as an indication that she participated in the covenant. And um, Jacob, who will have his name changed. Um, Rebecca and Isaac, I suppose they're the middle children in this story. Yes. Um, simply are left out. Um, unimportant? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Okay. When in last week's portion, uh, Abraham is concerned that his son Isaac isn't married and he is not about to let Isaac choose a wife for himself. So he sends his servant to go back to his homeland, the land of his birth, to get a wife for Isaac because he doesn't believe Isaac. If, If Isaac goes back, he might not return. And the servant tells the family, particularly Rebecca, I'd like you to come and marry my, my, uh, uh, my owner's son. Um, and Rebecca is given the same information that Abraham was given back in uh, Genesis 12. Leave your, leave your land, leave everything you're used to on the basis of a promise. That's what God says to Abraham. That's what the servant says to Rebecca. They're looking for a woman who's strong, who's confident, who's courageous, who believes she can handle anything in front of her, just like Abraham must have had those qualities in order to leave everything that he has known on the basis of this voice, you know, that tells him he's going to be blessed. So I see Rebecca as another Abraham. So I would say Abraham, Rebecca, and Jacob. 
So you see Rebecca even more than Isaac. More. Than um, as truly the successor to Abraham. Indeed. She is the one, um, paraphrasing, that leaves her home. She gets a promise that there's something valuable at the end of this journey. And Isaac is really not very much of a um, fully developed character. But Isaac never does anything on his own. He, he never has anything that he does for himself. Or he, you, told, you said he dug his father's well. He passed off his wife like his father did. The one time that Isaac decides he's going to do something that he wants to do, give this blessing to, to Esau. The one time he decides he's going to do something, his wife, Rebecca, is, is uh, uh, Charlie Brown in the football all over again with Lucy pulling out the rug from under him and substituting uh, Jacob because she knows, because God had told her, the younger one's going to serve the older. So she says, well, I'm going to help this along a little bit. I'm going to take charge of who gets the good blessing. So, I mean, I'm just fascinated, and I hope our listeners can um, understand the import of Rabbi Klein's um, intuition here. That is insight, namely that Rebecca becomes the um, primary figure in this story. She is the one who ensures that the birthright, that the heritage from Abraham is going to go to the son who is uh, part of the divine plan. And while Rabbi Klein hasn't used any of these words, in terms of divine and um, uh, sacred, the story is unable to continue if we simply follow passive Isaac. And the divine voice tells her that this is what it's going to be. That's right. In the birth story, so right at the beginning, she gets the message which Isaac doesn't hear. Right. And which the story, um, in a sense, keeps hidden from Isaac. His simple nature, very much like Esau. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, he's been beaten down. I think he's a damaged person after Mount Moriah. And he's a laugh, you know, his name is Laughter. I, I read it as he's a laughing stock. You know, his parents are 100 years old and 90 years old. The people are, you know, pointing at him. Look at that kid. How did they have that child? You know, I, I think he grew up that way. I think he's damaged goods. I'm going to leave it at that. My guest this morning, who has offered some wonderful insight into this Torah portion called Toldot, has been Rabbi Joe Klein, who now is Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Emmanuel in Oak Park, Michigan. For those who want to listen to a broadcast of us, we're on 99.1 FM or on chri.ca website as a podcast, or you can download it on iTunes as a podcast. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, thanking Rabbi Klein for joining us and wishing you, the listeners, shalom and have a good day.